Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Weekly Call. Super excited to be bringing on my grandfather this episode. And this was pointed out to us by actually my mom called me the other day and was like, hey, I've been listening to your podcast and you should definitely have your grandfather on. You know, he was a naval submarine captain and was at sea on both destroyers and submarines, led hundreds of men and captained many ships and what better person to interview on leadership and how to properly lead a team than your grandfather. And the fact that I'd never put those things together was a shock. And so we we got him on quickly after that. So just a super valuable conversation. Uh, Two of my worlds colliding really between my family and especially my grandfather with John and Ammer, which was really cool to experience. And a conversation that I think a lot of you will really enjoy getting maybe a different perspective on what it's like to lead from a non-business point of view and what things were like uh, in the Navy in terms of leadership in the 60s, 70s, 80s. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Weekly Call. So we can turn on the stress response just by thought alone. We can think about our problems and turn on those chemicals. That means then our thoughts could make us sick. So if it's possible that our thoughts could make us sick, is it possible then our thoughts could make us well? The answer is absolutely yes. You're listening to the Weekly Call Podcast with Austin, Hammer, and John. Welcome. It's enormously important that you do have the right friends. If they make you a better person than you otherwise would be, that's the ultimate gift. It deals, for the most part, with success. It deals with people who you started your life off with and what success does to them. People look at you strange saying you changed, like you worked that hard to stay the same, like you're doing all this for a reason. Remind yourself, this fight that you're in, this is what will make you stronger. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of The Weekly Call. Uh, we've got Amaro out in Etobicoke, Ontario, as usual. Uh, John out in Kelowna, BC. And we have a special guest tonight. Uh, Terry Jones, my grandfather, is joining us from Ottawa, Ontario. And uh, before welcoming into the podcast here, I'm just going to read out a introduction that is a little bit more long-winded than the average podcast introduction, but for a good reason. So um, James Terrence Jones, born in 1941 and raised in Unionville, Buttonville, and Markham, Ontario, uh, graduated from the Royal, uh, the Canadian Royal Military College in 1966 and married my grandmother, Diane, that same year. Uh, from 68 to 80, he was in Naval Submarine and Command Training in Onondaga, Ojibwa, and Okanagan. In 1968, on the Onondaga base, his first daughter, Marnie, my mother, was born. Uh, In 1981, he was off to War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And then after after finishing that, came back to Ottawa, Ontario, to learn Russian with his wife before uprooting his family to Moscow from 1982 to 84. And this time, he was accredited uh, in the USSR, Poland, and Finland as a naval attaché. Following that, from 1984 to 86, he captained the HMCS Terra Nova Destroyer at sea. Uh, From 86 to 88, he returned to Ottawa to work in Turkish, Arabic, and French embassies before departing back to Turkey for three years until 1991. 
From 91 to 92, he was the base commander of CFB Cornwallis in Nova Scotia. And after 31 years serving the Royal Canadian Navy, leading and commanding in five countries and learning how to speak three languages, would he retire then? No. Uh, from 1994 to 2003, Terry joined the United Nations as a volunteer and peacekeeper and did three tours in Vukovar, Croatia, Sarajevo, Bosnia, and Monrovia, Liberia. To sum up, uh, Terry was in the Navy for 31 years, four years at military college, five years in surface ships, 12 years captaining submarines, five years in school, three languages, and worked at five embassies over five years. He is a calm, collected, and well, has a well-poised demeanor when practicing leadership. And in my 24 years of existence, I've never heard his voice raised below a dull, or raised above a dull roar. He is someone I've mostly, he is someone I've most certainly tried to emulate in my own day-to-day -day management of my own life. And I count myself very lucky to have this man as my grandfather. Welcome to the Weekly Call podcast, James Terrence Jones. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Cool. So Amor and John, that's the first time they've heard any of that. So they don't, they don't really know who you are until now. So my first question is how... I'm, I've always been fascinated about how long you were at sea in, in a submarine, very small close quarters with many other men. And I'm fascinated to know how you manage those scenarios and, and how you, as the captain, how, how you're leading all of these men trapped in a small vessel at sea. Well, first of all, I didn't command all of those years in submarines. I was just in command for two years. In Ojibwa. The other times I was a uh, one of the other officers on board. Uh, yes, just to give you an idea, these are the old class submarines, and the the actual pressure hole where the people live is 240 feet long and 16 feet wide, and we had 70 people in there. So it's a uh, <laughs> it takes a well, and everybody that's there is a volunteer, so you don't get a lot of complaining. You can't volunteer and then bitch about it right. uh, <laughs> but it's uh it requires actually i mean i think you're going to ask me about leadership and, and the other ships. yeah of course well and there and all of them were different and the, and the peculiarity of the submarine was that when you became captain uh well all this class of submarines had a captain and six other officers uh <clears throat> And as you progress through the different positions, you learned more basically watching your captain and the second in command and, and just, you know, learning. By the time you reached command, you, you were the leader and actually had to be the leader because you knew more than all the other officers. Mm. Now, this wasn't the same in other ships, but leadership was almost easy in a submarine because everybody knew that you were safe because you'd passed this command course at the Royal Navy. So they knew that you weren't going to get them killed. Because uh, <laughs> you'd go with them. Uh, and, yeah. yeah, I guess if uh, something goes wrong in a submarine, there's no survivors. Yeah. It's the ultimate insurance, hey? Yeah. <laughs> Terry has to be loyal because, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess you're not risking anything. <laughs> it's certainly a form of encouragement. Uh, <laughs> what was I going to say about that? Uh, yes, yeah, so you, like 
mean, all my experiences with the military, you're automatically by legislature, <laughs> a leader. Uh, you get the uniform, the insignia, people below you are obliged to do what you do, or do what you say. And if you're exercising actual leadership as opposed to being in charge, who uh, then you get into personalities. And uh, particularly in the submarine, uh, as you said, we were trapped. And on the first trip I went out, we were down for 30 days. And you, uh, you have a, an odd relationship with, with the other men on board. And I don't mean anything other than just <laughs> a relationship. I mean, the, uh, the big thing that people lose is a uh, privacy. A lot of people say, oh my God, you must be claustrophobic. Well, of course you're not. You wouldn't volunteer if you were claustrophobic. <laughs> but, but you're forever literally rubbing up against people. And uh, your sleeping quarters are just a bunk. Uh, and for the sailors, it's an Iraq of three, uh, so close together. If I have broad shoulders, I couldn't turn over in my bunk. You had to either go in on your back or your stomach. So it's a different kind of life and, and, and leadership becomes one of, uh, I think of a good word for it, but leading by example, I guess, in the sense that uh, you, particularly when you have command, you're in the control room and everybody, I mean, literally everybody goes silent when you come in the control room and they're just waiting waiting for to see what you want. And that's a kind of an awesome position to be in, in the sense that if you, I mean, just as an example, you walk in and snap your fingers and the periscope goes up. Uh, or you walk in and uh, say, oh, what's so-and-so wrong? And, and you get an immediate response and an immediate reply. It's because of the nature of the submarines, uh, 70 men on board and you can't operate it with less than 70. Every person has, has a job. And so as a, as a leader, you've got to try to make sure that all these people are aware of their responsibilities and, uh, and perform to the best of their ability. We didn't have a lot of problems. Uh, we didn't serve alcohol at sea. Well, I shouldn't say that. You, you could buy two cans of beer a day. Most people didn't bother. We didn't serve any hard spirits because you don't want a guy on the one man control and start heading for 600 feet instead of 60 feet. Uh, so, so alcohol wasn't a problem. Uh, smoking was a problem uh, in the sense that. That'd be interesting. Well, you've got a closed atmosphere. Right. And uh, <clears throat> some ships, they just said no smoking, which doesn't work. Right. The attitude I took was that I would rather let a guy have a cigarette every hour who's sitting there on an important plot instead of finding him over there in a the corner shaking and doesn't know what the hell he's doing. So right. I was kind of slack in that way. That was my one of my forms of leadership was not to be browbeating the men because they all knew their jobs. Uh, it's just to encourage them to do it correctly and, and willingly. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you'd call that well, that was the leadership that I was used to. I don't know if that applies to what you guys are thinking of. Mm. 
I think well, it certainly you, does. you had um you made the distinction um you know between someone who's in charge and someone who's actually leading did you ever find yourself in a situation where you were below someone who was simply just in charge and they weren't necessarily a good leader yeah i had two really bad captains uh there's a tradition we, we these submarines were built for us for the royal navy and all of our training for the for the crew was over there so we came back with a lot of royal navy or habits. And they used to make the joke that you could tell who was in command because he was yelling the loudest. <laughs> and and I didn't take that approach. I mean, there were captains who were just, just fucking maniacs and yell at you for anything and you know, kick people. To me, that was just meant you were out of control. Mm -hmm. So I took a much softer approach and uh, encouraged people and tried to you know, lighten things up with a with a light line or a joke even. And uh, I think it was successful. Uh, I, my, even as before I was in command, you know, you're, you're the, the executive officer, you're second in command, and you're the operations officer, you're, you're, you're the weapons officer. So in each case, you've got a group of the crew that you're, you're uh, leading, uh, just the captain has to lead them all. And uh, I found the best way was to, not to mix with them, can't you know the old familiarity breeds contempt thing, but uh, to mix with them in the sense of uh, appreciating how hard they were working, their skills, and to look after them. I mean, the officers in charge of the rest of the crew are responsible for their uh, their discipline, but also for their training, for their advancement, promotion. So that's another way to to exercise leadership. And that is to look after your men, and uh, they know they know in a very heartbeat whether you're, whether your heart's in that or not. Yeah, one thing that um, my I, I was in contact with my mom leading up to this podcast, seeing if she had anything to add to that that long winded long winded introduction, and she said, you know, the only thing that I would add to that is that when she was with you and and. Jen over in Moscow and attending a lot of these events as the commander, commander's son, or sorry, the commander's daughters, um, they would be over, like when they would explain that they were Terry Jones's daughters, that people would be like, oh my God, you know, like your father is such a great leader and such an inspiring or, or su su such a unique leader in that sense, right? Because I think the, the, the narrative is that you know, naval commanders would be quite tough and, and authoritative. And like you were describing the two other leaders that you had. And so I guess in, in that regard, especially, you know, in, in the sixties and seventies and eighties, um, what you're describing your strategy was, was, would it be fair to say unique at that time? Well, I did get, well, yeah, not, it wasn't common. I don't know. How right. Unique, right. But yeah. Uh, I like I guess most systems, and certainly the military, we have an annual assessment system and a quarterly review before the annual assessment. And I was forever getting criticized by my superiors for being too soft. Mm. You've got to get in there and yell a couple of times, kick some ass. I don't know who's in charge. I said, well, they know who's in charge. Yeah, it's me. And I don't want them... You know, when I turn my back, I don't want to get this from the, you know. So 
because to me it was a fine line between Curry in favor and uh, earning it or winning it. I think I was successful. There's a lot of great military writers that would uh, maybe side with with the superiors at the time, where they they say that it's better to be feared than loved. Um, if you had a chance to rebut at those people who say that, what would your argument be that your approach was perhaps more effective than the latter? Well, I would take love out of the way, but I mean, uh, nobody's going to love you <laughs> when you're in command. But uh, I think that the men who are under you, if they're afraid of you, uh, and usually it becomes afraid of reporting things that you don't want to hear. Like they used to talk about Trump. Um, people didn't have the guts to uh, to bring things forward that he didn't like. Uh, I, in my standing orders, whichever captain writes, I said that uh, I would I, I would never criticize somebody for making a mistake if they would come forward and admit it, or I mean, tell me that that it happened. Uh, People make mistakes, they can, if they've done it, can be corrected. But uh, if you've got them so fit scared, they won't even come come near you because the last time you tried to bite their head off and embarrass them in public. Uh, so I don't think fear just is, is, is the, is, is, wouldn't be attractive to me. Uh, somewhere below fear, I guess, but, <laughs> but not low. You, you mentioned some examples of... Uh of previous commanders who would just go around yelling and kind of unleash their fury. And I can't help but imagine that uh, thinking back to the quote of absolute power corrupts absolutely. What, uh, what mindset training did you have or what thought process did you always undergo to not allow yourself to fall to that classic trap of getting all this power and being the commander from going to your head? I guess because I had seen other people that I didn't respect do that. Uh, I've actually been kicked by captains. Uh, just to get into a little bit of detail, when you're in a submarine at periscope depth, it's really important that you keep on right on the order depth so that you can see out of the periscope. And so the officer, one of the officers is the trimming officer and he's over there responsible. And if you dip it down to the low and the captain can't see, you know, I would say, come on, get me up here. You know, I can't see. The other guys would turn around and absolutely scream at them, you fucking idiot. You know, can't you can't you do your job? Wow. And the whole rest, all the sailors are sitting there looking at it saying, first of all, I don't think they care for the captain doing that. They felt so sorry for the trimming officer who was doing his best. And it just, it just was not something that, having received that kind of treatment, it certainly wasn't something I was prepared to do. Mm. So and, your fear and love thing, <laughs> I'm away from fear. I'm sort of halfway down the, the, the chain. Yeah, you found that balance where you're authentic to yourself, but at the same time, yeah. you didn't have to cross unnecessary boundaries. Yeah. Um, I mean, quite often, you know, we conduct summary trials in the military. And there's guys that I quite like we're actually neighbors like carpool with but I would see them in front of me with their cap off charged with something under the National Defense Act 
tear a little strip off them mildly, find them a hundred dollars and say, carry on. Ooh. So you've got to have that uh, ability to, to uh, remain in charge without being abusive. That's my mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. Being uh, rigorous versus ruthless is what I'm hearing. That's a good term, yeah. Mm -hmm. One other thing I'm seeing too is that uh, it's always sometimes like we, we talk about leadership from more of a entrepreneurial and business standpoint. And a lot of things that people struggle with in that regard is differentiating or distinguishing themselves from the role they're in. Meaning, you know, if I'm getting a, if I'm getting negative feedback as a leader, that that's a personal attack on me, not my performance as a leader in this role. And so when people like understanding that when you, you played a role on those ships as a leader and it wasn't necessarily if people had anything to say about you or, it, or, or anybody that you were actually trying to lead that it was an attack or, or, or just an attack on you, right? It was, it was a role that you had. And so um, it, it's also something that like, it seems like it aids, right? Like I know that we've talked about this a lot on here is that Hang on a second. yeah, being able to uh, being able to just um, see the difference between what the, what what you're being tasked with doing and and what your role is versus what your who you are and what you do. And when people in this professional role that that we may have or that you had in your career, have negative feedback for you or any sort of feedback for you to collapse you as a human being with that role and take everything personally can sometimes be a challenge. So in terms of um, what you've experienced, like whenever you would get negative feedback as a leader, knowing you, because I know you really well, like it, it seems like this totally wouldn't phase you if somebody had anything to say about you negatively or, or even somewhat constructive. Um, and I think the, the unique part of that with you is that you see your role and who you are as a person quite differently, right? Like who you are as a grandfather or a father is obviously not the same, the exact same guy that um, the people, your subordinates might see, right? And I, th I think a lot of people have that difficulty of, you know, when I get negative feedback from an employee, well, that, that really hurts me, Austin here. And, you know, well, that, that doesn't speak anything to what type of brother or friend I am to people in my personal life. Right. So was that always very clear to you from the beginning that outside of your role, uh, you were never to take things personally. Um, I, cause I think that when you see about a lot of these commanders that, that would get angry and kick people, clearly they're collapsing their, role with how they expect to be treated by everybody else in a non-professional environment so yeah i also muted you by the way so you might just have to unmute in the corner awesome request to unmute on the yeah, top right it makes it easy for them so you should get a prompt to unmute yeah you should have like a little there we go perfect yes uh how do you measure whether you're successful or not? I guess yeah. that uh, you guys are all either in business. I guess you are all in business, and you you have a product. The thing about the military is we don't have a product. We're not selling anything. That, well, we're expected to perform, uh, but 
how we measure performance is kind of different from what you're used to. You could say that a successful captain is one that doesn't have a mutiny. Well, I guess that's one way of measuring success, but uh, you guys have balance sheets and you, you're striving to, to make money. I mean, money wasn't a concern of mine. I was paid to be there and I knew exactly to the penny what I was going to be paid. It really didn't matter uh, how well I did. It didn't affect my day-to-day uh, -day living. So I was <clears throat> just kind of selfish. You would, you would like your leadership you like the people that you're leading to, to kind of like you, certainly respect you. Uh, and I think that's what I had. People, people weren't in love with me, uh, but they were <clears throat> quite prepared to do anything I asked. And uh, one of the other ways to measure something, this is a military thing too, maybe it's business, is are people proud to be doing what they're doing? And in, in, the, in the Navy, it's the reputation that the ship has. I mean, there were people who said, I am really pleased to be on Ojibwa because we got Jones for a captain. But I can remember myself saying, I really don't want to go to sea and I'd let him open oven because the man's an idiot. So mm. uh, again, you're striving for that somewhere between idiot and uh, good guy or... <laughs> fear and uh, acceptable mm -hmm. and things and I you know I, I, everybody has to find their way down that path and I think I did I was satisfied what, what have you observed is the easiest way to lose respect as a leader lying uh, mm. deception I guess too in that regard maybe pardon deception and, and yeah. Like, yeah well you know, there were some captains that, you know, just thinking of this one, they wanted, they wanted this boat, submarines are called boats, by the way, not ships. They, they wanted the, uh, the boat to look good because it, because it made them look good. So I've, I've learned from other people who were sailing with them that they would uh, falsify or write, write reports in such a way that it made them look pretty good. So they're actually using their position of command for some personal gain. I won't say I didn't care, but uh, I knew that I was doing okay. And I wasn't gonna get promoted any faster or slower by falsifying records to make, the, make me look good. So that was something that was a real dissatisfying. I've heard that a couple of times in other boats. Yeah, it makes sense. That's, uh, that's really, really interesting that, well, I guess, what was your take on it compared to making you look good? Because um, clearly, you took a different route, and still ended up looking good. <laughs> like, you know, being able to talk about your, your positive experiences there. So well, I was uh, uh, a very good ship handler. Mm actually driving the physically driving the vessel i could bring it alongside in tough conditions and uh, mm. back it out and take it underneath the surface ship and take pictures of its propellers and things uh and i purposely forced 
myself and the ship's company into tight situations, uh, mainly navigational situations, going submerged into uh, small bays and things. So that made me feel good uh, because I did it, or it went successfully, but it also made the, the uh, boat look good. So other people would say, geez, did you hear what Jim Boy did last week? I said, he did so and so and so and so. Or no, we went and fired six torpedoes back uh, successfully. So there's that, uh, are you using leadership for personal gain or are you mm. using, using it because you want the entire seven people to look good? Wow. I, I took the second approach. That would That's amazing. Using your skill set to make the entire boat look good and be proud. Yeah, you can either look impressive or just actually be impressive. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose John, there's. Well, yeah, I suppose there's there's a certain aspect of like some leaders wanting all the fame and glory for themselves, and you're saying that you were willing to spread the wealth essentially. Yeah. I'm a, sure that, that you probably earn the respect of your sailors. I would say this. I don't know how many times, but quite a few, that there were seventy people on board. And we could not let a sing. We couldn't operate properly without one of them. Hmm. I mean, we had three cooks who just worked their ass off feeding seventy people four and five meals a day. Uh, we had one admin clerk, one supply tech. Whereas surface ships had a half a dozen of all these things. So you really had to encourage. Like, oh, first of all, they were volunteers, so they wanted to be there, but. Uh, those would encourage them and say, you know, they get discouraged after and, and uh, a little praise. And uh, that's, that's about it, I guess. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I think that uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up and, and an anonymous person asked me to bring this up, but as, as a funny anecdote, but apparently there was a time where a uh, submarine you were in had surfaced in the middle of a regatta and uh in the middle of a race like a boat race it was like a sub your submarine came up and surfaced in the middle and i was just wondering if you could share that story with us it sounds like it would be an interesting one well it wasn't a regatta in the sense of moving boats uh i had to take my boat over to the uk and provide it for this perisher course uh and my contribution was to do uh a two-week simulated war patrol we came out of southern England out at 500 miles the other side of Ireland uh, and then they started looking under Soviet vessels and uh, I'll tell you I'll bore you with all the details but in the end we and uh, we had to go into a, a little bay at the mouth of the Clyde and we were supposed to go and put off the students who had all passed successfully uh, to a, a, a launch that would come out from the, from the uh, submarine base. It was really foggy. And uh, so we went in and submerged for a periscope depth. We couldn't see a bloody thing. I mean, we pretty much knew where we were. So I said, okay, we're back surface. We came up and there must have been 20 or 30 sailboats at anchor who had all... Huh. Like, finished their sailing regatta, they'd all come into the same bay to uh, spend the night. <laughs> so we just brought uh, 2,000 pounds of steel up into the middle of it and said, hi. I mean, it was just 
straight luck of the draw that we didn't hit any. We looked like heroes because we had done it. But we would have looked like assholes if we got her wrong. There's the other oh, one that geez. you heard is we got uh, had an underwater collision. And uh, that was kind of scary. Uh, I wasn't the captain. And the captain I, that was one that I like, and he did a good job. I was the trimming officer. We got too close under. We were supposed to go under, take a look at the bottom of a guy and take pictures of his underwater fittings. It's just an, it's an exercise you do. And the uh, captain got it wrong. He turned too early and got hit. And uh, the uh, ship that we hit had a 17-foot propeller. 17 feet in diameter. And it whacked us quite a few times and tore the whole top off the fin. Fortunately, it didn't damage the pressure hole. We surfaced right behind us. So it was, it's one of those things where uh, <laughs> the sailors, sailors used to have this expression when things happened like that and say, my, that must be what adrenaline smells like. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, a scary thing. Uh, fun to talk about because nobody was hurt, but uh, it was an exciting time. I, I guess out of the whole time I was in the service, those years of submarines were the ones that I enjoyed the most. Yeah, there's always these uh, little mistakes or uh, errors that come up when you're a commander. And the difference between us, like business owners and a commander is we can fire people if they make mistakes. Whereas you can't really launch a guy into sea if you don't like him, right? So how well, did you- Yeah, yeah. yeah gang playing. <laughs> you just throw him <laughs> with the torpedo and send him out. But how did you handle complacency and people not doing what they're supposed to do, people falling out of line? What was your strategy to have these conversations to make sure that the men were aligned? Because um, you, you can't fire them. So what was your methodology approaching that problem? Well, I had, uh, the Navy, regardless of what ship you're on, has a thing called the divisional system. And every sailor, you know, they're divided into divisions, weapons, engineering, and things. And each of those divisions is headed by a senior NCO and usually an officer. So if you found out that, I mean, it became clear that, I don't know, the sonar men were slacking off and weren't doing their job, you'd get a divisional officer and say, look, I want you to take charge of that division. Uh, there's a uh, you know, we've had complaints about so and so what I'm complaining. And so you could you could use the chain of command to get down to nitty gritty without me having to go in and start saying, come on, buck up, you're not doing a good job. I could do that with the officers. But as far as the sailors, I used to try to not hide from them, but pass it on through the chain of command so everybody was involved. Mm. When you mentioned the chain of command, um, what did you find work best? A decentralized chain of command or a centralized chain of command? You don't have the option of decentralized. I mean, you're organized by half a dozen things. Uh, command standing orders, ship standing orders. Uh, there's, a, there's just a certain way to say run an old-class submarine. You can't decide, you know, I'm going to paint it pink and have everybody wear shorts or something. You <laughs> There are, <laughs> there are set rules that you, that you would uh, you know, deviate from at your, at your peril. I mean, they, because your superiors would say, what the hell's going on down okay, there? Okay, got it, yeah. So 
they were performing, <laughs> they were providing leadership too, by keeping an eye on me. So yeah, in the military, it's a it's one thing to talk about leadership, but there's also this chain of command that doesn't let you get out of line very much. Whereas you guys, they're pretty much free to do what you want, I yeah. think. Well, as, as business owners, one thing that, uh, you know, John mentioned maybe, t- like, you know, c- maybe 20 weeks ago or something like that was the, the advantage of a business owner creating decentralized command where you can have people make decisions on their own versus I can imagine many nights where you have to sit down, sign off on some things that you would think are redundant for you to even decide on. Um, so that, that <laughs> Yeah, there's probably stories where you have to sign off on, you know, what side toilet paper should be facing or something like that. And yeah. Well, in the end, uh, just in my case, while I was there for two years, I was a Dubois. I mean, if anything went wrong, it was me. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, in the Navy, uh, they refer to you by the name of your ship. Like if you're uh, going into, oh. a, into a meeting or something and say, Ojibwe arriving. Uh, and everything. Uh, the buck stops there with you. Yeah. I mean, if you go aground at your fault, or if the, uh, you know, if you, if you run out of toilet paper at sea, it's your fault. <laughs> Even though somebody else was involved. Uh, in fact, you know, I can remember sitting at my desk, so tired. Didn't want to do it, but along comes the senior cook. He's got the menu for the next four weeks, and he wants to go over it with me. And what do I, you know, what do I think about this? And when I sign off, and, okay, fine. So you carry on with it. But there's, I mean, there's everything from there to, you know, stand by the surface, or you know, we're going to dive. So you have the full range of, uh, full range of the, everything that happens on board is is yours. That's one thing that uh, we have in common then is that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it's a small thing or a big thing. Uh, the, the owner or the leader uh, or the commander is always responsible, right? Like yeah. the, you could, you know, like we were talking about this again a long time ago. I can't remember which episode, but um, the idea of taking accountability for something that you yourself had no intention or even part in, you know, um, just because of your role. And that's something that for a lot of people would be just like the easiest out, like, well, hold on, I wasn't involved. I didn't do any of this. Like, and there's so much value in taking that extra level of accountability for things that you might even not known was going on uh, below your level. So yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I had a question here that I wanted to like to ask you, but it was more so along the lines of, the assumption that you would have had to be involved in deciding on some people that would be either reprimanded or even promoted, right? Yes. So what were some key variables that in your experience or some key traits that you would be looking for in people to promote? What was a good sign that somebody was worthy of a promotion in your eyes? Well, like you, we don't, we can't do, we can't make that a personal decision on who gets promoted. It's a very right. complicated administrative system. People yeah. have to make certain qualifications and certain time and rank and all those sort of things. Okay. So, so after they make all those requirements, 
there usually comes a message down saying, table uh, semen belongs as this to be acknowledged as a leading semen effective such and such a date. In an extreme case, you could say bugger. I mean, I, this guy's a total loser. I'm, I'm not even going to promote it. But you don't have that control. I mean, if the system has said this guy meets all the requirements and he's promoted, all you can say is, I agree. Uh, which you can get at people. I wouldn't say get at them, but that the way you can control some of that is that through annual assessments. And uh, annual assessments make a, are a fairly big part of the promotion system. And uh, you can write people up falsely or write, cane them down if you don't, don't like them, but which is not very, not very fair, of course. But I mean, you, in almost every case, you're trying to get your people promoted. I mean, that's the whole point of leading a division of people is that you would like to get them promoted uh, just because everybody likes a promotion, I guess. Uh, whereas you have the freedom to say, don't bother coming in Monday, I don't want them. You don't work here anymore. Right. So you had a structure in place that would pretty much decide that for you. As the captain or the commander, did you have any was there any case where you actually had any input on, hey, for, for maybe a more important or higher up role that somebody was asking for your confirmation that that was the right move? Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I guess that is a fairly large difference then too. Yeah, John, go ahead. Well, I was a division officer for the officers and there were six officers and uh, you really really got to know them well. Right. My cabin, were you ever in Ojibwa? No. I wasn't, no. My cabin was only 10 feet from the forward periscope. Oh, so wow. the forward end of the control room. So you're lying there half awake. Uh, you can hear everything that's going on. And uh, there's always two officers on watching the control room. So after a few months, you really get to know whether these guys are know what they're doing or they're worth keeping. Because you're always assessing them to move on up to the to command, and I can remember, remember three times easily where I could actually fire an officer. Uh, just go into the squadron man and say, "This guy's an asshole. He's never going right. to make it. Get rid of him." Right. In fact, one case was so bizarre that I was in the English Channel and I pulled into Portsmouth and said, "Get. Here's mm -hmm. a train ticket. Here's a train ticket to the airport. Fly home." I, uh, questions are asked, but nobody argued with it in the final decision. So yes, we do have that specific control that I just mentioned, but. Right. I, you know, I have to ask, what was the sort of the closest you ever came? Like, was there any close calls? I know you kind of mentioned the one where the propellers hit you, but was there ever a moment you're like, holy smokes, like this could be the end of us kind of thing? That one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> there's a the pressure hull's a long tube. There's another tube goes up vertical to it that gives you access to the bridge. Uh, and the propeller missed the top of that by about 18 inches. And if he hit it, he may well have knocked it, broken it off the hull, and flooded the control room and lost the boat. 
So, yeah. Would, be, was, would it be a practically a guarantee that everybody on board would die? Mm, well, no, we we're in only about 200 feet of water. Mm. Uh, if the control room was flooded, people would get to the either end and, and uh, there's escape to it, towers there. So some would have made it. The ones that control room wouldn't have. It's, it seems like a submarine is sort of like a, um, it just seems like a really dangerous endeavor. Like, it seems like it's one of those ones where like, if you're, you know, underwater and you, you know, you got hit by something or, you know, it, it seems like, uh, it, it seems like the, if something was to go wrong, it seems like that would be the last place you'd want to be is in a submarine, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's not a lot of, it's not a very enviable position. It's, it's quite similar to air, like air force in a sense, because you're in yeah exactly yeah a metal casket yeah well interesting you say that because they act when they're submerged they actually act like, like aircraft mm. when you when you're on a surface ship you see my hand you put the rudder over hard the boat will swing out of the turn the boat will left and the ship mm. will lean to starboard the submarine if you put the helm over the port say you're doing a 10 knots and you're submerged, totally submerged, the boat will lean into the turn. And if you put, put some uh, dive on the hydroplanes, it'll roll over and dive. Uh, hmm. Then wow. you can lose, lose control that way. We, we used to take people to sea with us from time to time, and usually airmen when we were working with air squadrons. We had a pilot there who flew, uh, flew the big four-engine Argus. He was with us for the week. Hmm. So everybody comes out, we say, we'll put them on one-man control. <laughs> He's there in about five minutes. He was just like a rock. I mean, he was better than many of our helms. Oh, interesting. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And he, he said, well, what the hell are you doing this? He said, it's just like flying through molasses. He said, it's one big deal of it. Flying <laughs> through molasses. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. He, That's hilarious. But these are guys that were used to flying. You know, you said that submarines being dangerous. These guys are these big old four-engine aircraft, propeller-driven. I'd be out there looking for submarines. I would, you know, we'd be providing the target for them. Mm -hmm. We'd watch them. And they would go over 200 feet, dip the wing up, and come back around again. The wing, I mean, it looked like they were going to cartwheel into the goddamn water. Yeah, and, it's crazy. Yeah. So they were earning their pay out there as well. We weren't, we weren't the only ones. That, that, I mean, people talk about submarines mainly because they don't know anything about them. Right. They think dangerous. The nice thing about them is. You know, if you're getting in trouble on the surface in a collision, you can go down. <laughs> you just you dive down in, away from everyone else. You can work in three dimensions. And if the weather gets shitty, you can go down out of it too. Mm -hmm. I remember we were off Bermuda years ago. The big exercise area about 200 miles southeast of Bermuda. And a uh, hurricane was coming through. So all the surface ships ran like hell for Bermuda. Fired alongside and tied themselves to the wall. Because we couldn't go because we weren't fast enough and we didn't want to go anyway. So we just went down, stayed down for a day. And even down at 300 feet, you can feel a boat moving a bit because it was so rough on the surface. I just can't imagine being up there. So that's one of the nice things about a submarine. You know, Terry, I, I got to ask as well. You know, you got maybe a naive question, but. Was there ever any women on the ship? Like, is it just 70 men, that's it, all the time? No women. No exception. Just a bunch of dudes. Never. Never. We, well, we had a dependence day cruise. We would take the women out of Halifax. But 
as far as anything, any trip, like overnight trips or anything? No. And they're, and women weren't allowed to, to serve in anyways. How they interesting. Are, they are now. Because uh, I went to RMC when women weren't allowed either. <laughs> hmm. It's crazy, fact, the different world. Yeah, I don't know how far we're going to get down in this conversation, but the last command I had was Canadian Forces Base Cornwallis. Mm -hmm. And I was suddenly presented with things I hadn't had to deal with before. Civilians, women, uh, all kinds of uh, shenanigans. These kind of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was, that's why I was curious about it. You know, it seems like, you know, it, yeah, it, it seems like it would create a, a, a new. A new variable just, to manage. Yeah, a new sure. variable to manage. Yeah, right? as the leader, yeah. Um, I wanted to just step into a new part of your career here, which was peacekeeping. And peacekeeping with the United Nations is something that as your grandson, I, I know more of. I mean, that at least took place in my lifetime. Uh, some of your tours, at least, I, I think. So I remember being uh, old enough to remember you just coming back, I think, from your last tour in, in, uh, in Liberia. And, you know, my mom and grandma showing me these photos of you with these you know three or four or five children who are all holding like rpgs and automatic you know like assault rifles and they're seven years old like you know just in, in a refugee camp with huge firearms and, and it was your job to go along and, and confiscate these firearms from these children in these refugee camps correct well Sort of. Is that uh, different? Okay. No, no. no, no. Okay. What you said was true. We were trying to get the weapons back. It's just that we had plenty of military there to go out and actually do it. Right. Uh, I, was, I was involved with the background to it. And uh, uh, there were three, three forces in Liberia. We, the job that I had was to be the liaison between the three of them. So quite often I would get involved with saying, to them, I know your guys down there have got a shit box full of RPGs or something. Uh, we want them. Uh, so we would go with them and sort of negotiate with the guys who are holding them. Uh, to pay you, them? How would you negotiate with them? Money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, money. There's, we, uh, we got into this, I mean, the whole mission got into this weapons buyback program where we would pay, we said the, uh, we'd give people $150 for an RPG. An RPG. What a deal is that? <laughs> no, 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 I mean, an AK-47, I didn't mean an RPG. Wow. We give them 150 bucks, but we only give them a chip for 75. And then we wanted them to go to a, to a uh, camp where they would learn how to become peaceful citizens again. <laughs> <laughs> to get the other seven and then <laughs> then when they came out after two or three months as uh they'd come back with four rpgs to try and sell them <laughs> they get the other 75 bucks well it didn't take these guys more than about 10 minutes to know that if you get 150 bucks for for your ak-47 you can get 150 bucks for your buddies too <laughs> so guys would come in with an arm loader Wow. <laughs> and, and then once they got through all those, uh, they started saying, well, 
we've got other things. You know, we've got hand grenades. Oh. So I don't know. We'd say something like, we'll give you 25 bucks for a hand grenade or we'll uh, give you 100 bucks for a pistol. And then it got down to ammunition. I'm saying, well, you know, if you give us a bag of 150 rounds, we'll give you this sort of money. And, uh, <laughs> so then you get these women coming in with a baby hanging off their breasts and this bag of, of ammunition. They wanted to return it. Okay, I, mean, I think by the end, we were right down to buying sharpened sticks from them. <laughs> because it was one of, those, one of those UN things where once you start it, it's hard to stop it. No, I. Because <laughs> then they get all shitty and start yelling at you. And, and a lot of them are still armed and things. So, so yeah, the, the well, my back program wasn't a great plan. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was smart until it wasn't yeah well the, the treasure one of the guys in the, in the finance department said if uh i don't i forget how much money we, we threw around but they said the money that we spent on it we could have bought all the all the weapons in the entire west africa oh yeah i mean we were spending millions and uh and as fast as we bought them Qaddafi up in in, in uh, Libya would send another truckload down. Right. But it was just a pissing in the wind. But that's, wow. what the, that's what the UN does. I, the UN does a lot of good things, but it really is it's a lot of things wrong. It must have been an interesting conundrum morally, or at least for you to watch all of this happening in front of you, especially with the children, uh, knowing that you had a family back in, in Canada that mm. was, you had grandchildren that age and you're seeing kids run around with guns and that's, you know. Yeah, there was a, we got there. I was there after about two months after the mission was set up. I came from another mission. And uh, there had been a 10-year civil war. Uh, and they just got rid of Charles Taylor out of the country. And the UN came in and said, okay, we're going to set up a temporary government here. And, uh, and we looked around. There was... There was no money. Uh, not only was there no money, there were no cats, there were no dogs. All the animals in the zoo had been eaten. I mean, the place was, and there was no electricity anywhere. Uh, the, the, the wires had all been taken down and stripped for their copper and things. And uh, the place just looked like ground zero. And of course, the UN comes in. We're here to help you. Uh, the shattered economy. And we were, just for example, uh, I had a contract for about 120,000 US a year. I didn't even touch that. I just put that in a bank account. Because in Liberia, when it's in a beach mission, everybody, everybody got $240 US a day just for being there. It's called mission subsistence allowance. Well, subsistence, you could live on $50 a week there. But basically, it was dangerous. So you get this little uh, secretary from Thailand who weighs about 100 pounds and is four feet tall. And you give her, at the end of the month, $4,000 in $100 bills. And all of them, I mean, I was getting that. Other people were getting it, too. So suddenly, this, the economy is shattered with a flood of of American money and nothing to buy. Oh, right. And of course, we're pretty liable targets too with all this money. Eventually, the, the, uh, every country down there has a Lebanese community that uh, runs the businesses. 
they very quickly got some chips in and started some grocery stores going and things. But uh, the, the UN does that a lot. They go into places that are really, I mean, pe- they don't send peacekeepers to Paris or anything. They send them to shithole places. But mm-hmm. uh, they tend tend to overpower the place. And uh, you know, I'm, from, I'm from the UN. I'm here to help you. And I can remember saying to guys, so I, we wouldn't do it this way in Canada. And the guy saying, we ain't in Canada, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, they're trying to get the school system going. Well, there's no school. There was not a single school with a roof on it. And then there was no money to pay the teachers. And so we would send these people back to retraining camps. Uh, they thinking maybe they'd like to become a baker's apprentice or something. All they wanted to do was men wanted to be motor mechanics. And uh, one of them didn't want to do anything. Uh, so it was kind of a, a hopeless exercise. Did you There's ever? A, the three in the Balkans are a little easier because you're dealing with people who have been used to a working economy and mm-hmm. uh, we didn't overpower them. Sorry, you're going to say Yeah, no, I, I'm just curious. Did you ever shoot an RPG? No. Uh, I was living with another Canadian guy, and we asked the guys who were collecting the weapons. I think it was a U.S. Marine, I think, did it for us. He said we wanted some weapons for house protection, so he, he gave us an AK-47. And uh, the other guy, he was, took that one, and I got a little Czechoslovak tiny machine gun called a Scorpia. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. A submachine gun. Yeah, but the nice thing about it was it sunk pulled it in in the magazine out it fit in my briefcase or that or the because we were driven uh Toyota Land who likes a four Toyota I think. Yeah, Toyota, yeah. yeah. It would fit in the glove compartment there. <laughs> uh I never used it. It was always sort of a nice feeling this oh was there. <laughs> and I and I'm a gun collector anyway, so I, so I would take it out and stroke it and things, but I never had to do it. That is awesome. I would have, if I were you, I would have, you know, maybe snuck out one night, grabbed an RPG, shot at the, you know, in the air, then a little firework, makeshift fireworks there. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, you probably get one of, the, one of the problems we had is that the weapons they had down there, they had the, uh, how's the name of them? The, uh, the missiles they shoot down aircraft with, the little AA shoulder, guns? No, shoulder fired ones that the Soviets were using in Afghanistan. Oh, stingers. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Stingers. stingers. We knew from documentation there were about 25 in the country. We didn't know where they were. So one of the meetings that, that I, I had to organize these monthly meetings with various groups and the various people used to sit in. One was the American, American embassy was still there in good form. The American military attache was an army officer. And he stood up and he said to the three groups, mainly to their leaders. We want those stingers back. We want them back tomorrow. And if we don't, because there's a real tight connection between Liberia and the U.S. They use U.S. money and uh, I mean, half of them have dual citizenship. He just said, if we don't get the stingers back, nobody leaves the country to, you know, there will be no more visas issued. Whoa. Next morning, 25 stingers. Oh, and our guys just went around with a hammer and smashed the sights on them. Because, I mean, we were, 
we were flying helicopters down there and we didn't, uh, and another fixed wing aircraft. We didn't want one of these maniacs shooting us down. Yeah. That is insane. Hmm. I, I think we should do a uh, whack versus wise. Nah, what do you think, Austin? I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but no, I was going to ask you uh, one last question here. What, like, I know that you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you joined the UN after retiring early from the Navy, mainly because retirement at 51, I think, what wasn't what you thought it may be, right? Uh, or well, something. I, yeah. You can stay. Retirement is compulsory at 55. And uh, I had reached the rank of captain, which is like the, a colonel in the Air Force, the Army. Mm-hmm. And the uh, career manager came around to see me and said, uh, the next rank is Commodore. And he said, we're only, we're only making one Commodore next year. And it ain't you. <laughs> turned, turned, out, turned out it was him. But anyways, <laughs> I thought, well, you know, if I'm not going to be promoted, um, I have a better chance that, at 51 of starting another career, getting another job, then I would have been mm. five. Turned out it wasn't that easy uh, to get new employment. I ended up working for a while back in my, I had given up command of, of uh, Cornwallis and it had been turned over to a Pearson Peacekeeping Center. And I ended up with a job back there on the staff as a civilian. <laughs> we had this beautiful big house there. Uh, the base commander was married quarters, unbelievably big and luxurious. But when I went back as an employee, the guy that was running the show was using my old bedroom as his office. So I was up there, where I used to sleep with my wife, standing <laughs> in front of this guy's desk. What a unique <laughs> thing! Wow, funny how that works out. Anyways, I didn't find anything local work that I wanted to do. I didn't want to be going back to the, so many of my classmates ended up working for companies like uh, Hewlett Packard or Raytheon, back right. selling stuff to people at headquarters. Right. I didn't do that. So I, I uh, called in some markers of friends of mine and got a job at the UN. So yeah, I was curious to know what you learned from the UN and your experience peacekeeping that you wouldn't have learned if you just stopped at the, at, after retiring with the Navy? Well, I learned that the UN is a, Jesus, I don't know how it ever even works, but, uh, <laughs> but you got involved a lot in diplomacy because you had people working with you and for you that were totally incompetent. I mean, just hopeless. Uh, but you still had to, deal with them and, and try to provide some leadership and some guidance to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you coming but, into the UN as a peacekeeper with a slightly higher rank because of your experience or were you just entering like anybody else would? Like how, how would you qualify for something like that? Well, they look at, at your history. Uh, right. For the people, there's a, a lower ranking people of the technocrats, the ones that run pay and older pools and things. And then they have five levels of professional officers, P1 to five. So I got wheeled in at P3, just based on the reading of my resume, which wasn't bad, it was fine. Uh, 
And the first uh, mission was in Eastern Croatia, right up against the Danube, where it borders on Serbia. <clears throat> and we were, and it was a, an area that the Serbs, was full of Serbs, <laughs> but after the breakup of the country, it was really part of Croatia. So the Croatians wanted the Serbs aid get back across the river into Serbia. The Serbs said, no, this is our home and, uh, and we want to stay here and we'd like to be independent. They had this thing called the RSK that included the Serbs of Krajina. Um, and that's when we came in at the UN and formed a temporary government called Unteus and set up a set of shadow government uh, with people like me running various departments. Uh, they were handing out jobs just after I got there. And uh, <laughs> they needed somebody to deal with the railways and the trains. And so they looked around the room and there was this, you know, a guy from Sierra Leone and another guy from someplace else. And not to decry them, but I mean, they had a wide range of people. And so I said, well, I'm familiar with diesel engines and submarines, so you got trains. So that was the, that was the selection process. Right. Uh, and but you had quite a bit of power. You had the power to call the two sides together and say, and you, "You guys are going to have to give up this this piece of land." Right. You either got to leave or you got to become Croatians. But you got to do something. Mm. What so, was the name of What was the name of that area? Because I have a lot of Serbian the Balkans, friends. right? So well, the whole area was called uh, Eastern Slavonia. Slavonia. Okay, but what is that specific area that they, they didn't want to leave? Well, Did he? they call. Well, let's see. It was divided into three sections. It's right up against the Danube. So the the mission was called uh, Unteus, United Nations Transition Administration for Eastern Slavonia, Irania, and Western Serbia. Uh, and we we set up offices in the three sections. Okay. The main part was in Vukovar, where I was, uh, and right down towards, uh, actually on the, on the road into Belgrade, you know, was on the furthest east spot. And the boat, and it went up against, the upper border was up against Hungary. Wow, okay, okay. Yeah, now I, I have some friends from Belgrade, so I'll, I'll bring that up. I used to go to Belgrade as often as I could. Yeah. It's like when we were in Moscow, we used to find excuses to go to Helsinki. Oh, in Mukovar, Mukovar had just been flattened. Uh, and uh, you know everybody. The electricity was coming from portable generators. But Belgrade was nice. There was no uh, no damage and uh, yeah. nice hotels and uh, good food. And nice people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that was a uh, dealing with those with the other UN employees was uh, could be quite touchy and uh, I, I, I guess diplomacy was the biggest biggest factor there was. Uh, well, another example, we were supposed to uh, supposed to get the local police people who were basically Serbs to treat the, the other people living there as proper citizens of Croatia. Now, these guys had been, they were professional policemen. Now, they didn't need instruction on how to police, but they did need some instruction on how to deal with, with the population. And I remember having to take this. And so the UN 
provided an advisor for them. And I was supposed to take her around to, to meet this crusty old guy at a police station. And she was a little girl from, I don't know what country, little tiny Asian person. Uh, and she'd been a police officer there, but you know, <laughs> nothing like was required here. So I wheel her in and with a translator, this didn't speak Serbo Croat, and uh, said, Well, Boggins, uh, <laughs> this is a UN advisor. She's going to be here uh, working in this office with you, uh, teaching you how to uh, run a more democratic police state station. Oh. And he looked at me and I looked at him. <laughs> So it is. I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm getting, I'm being paid no matter what I do. But we had all kinds of things. And you know, and people would show up. There was a bunch of Nigerian police there. And uh, one was just outrageously useless. <laughs> and finally had to call him in and say, look, for Christ's sake, what's your background? He said, Well, I wasn't really a policeman. Uh, my father was the Minister of External Affairs, and so that's why I'm here oh. with a police uniform. So, um, and the Americans sent some good people, but they also sent a guy who was a former stranger, and he was supposed to be there as a policeman. And the rest of the Americans used to laugh at him. So they, they, <laughs> he was part of the Rubber Gun Squad. Now they, uh, they get, they didn't let him do anything. They just said, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you give him the wooden gun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, one, we got one last question for you here, Grandpa, that we ask everybody that we bring on the podcast as like a, a final question. And you can answer it with one word or you can answer it with five words. It doesn't really matter. It's just the, the, the question is, what do you think the most notable traits of a strong leader are? Well, knowledge of the position, mm. you should know more than the people you're leading. Uh, a sympathetic approach to their problems without being too over familiar. Mm. I think I'll leave it there. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Um, yes, Terry, really... thank you. Thank you for your service. Yeah, I'm thank sorry. you for your service. I'm sorry I had to bore you with so much military stuff, but that's all I know. No, that's that's amazing. You're the first one who's been on here after a lot of people Love it. who can talk about that stuff. So thank you so much for coming on. It was really, it was everything I thought it would be and more. So thank you for, yes, for joining thank us. thank you. And uh, yeah, take care. We'll see you soon. Good luck to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Hey listeners, thanks so much for tuning in this week. As usual, you can find us on Instagram at the Weekly Call Pod or through email at theweeklycallpod at gmail.com for any questions or comments about any of our material and just to kind of pick our brain or even challenge us on a few things we said today. The intro and outro music was brought to you today by William Scott Thompson. You can find him on Spotify under that name. He has a lot of other great material on there that you can go listen to as well. Thanks so much for tuning in this week, guys. We'll see you soon.